This episode is sponsored by the Badass B2B Growth Guide. Over 3,500 people use the guide to create messages that invite prospects to care and motivate them to want to learn more. Invest once, lifetime updates, no subscriptions. Learn more at joshbraun.com slash shop. I'm stumbling across this guy Tebow's LinkedIn and I'm clicking around and I get to a line of text and this is what it says. I am able to use LinkedIn to get a 38% reply rate and 11% meeting rate. So I'm thinking to myself, I got to reach out to this guy and figure out what his secret is or if he's using the force like Star Wars. Tebow, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Josh, for having me and, and reading this line. Now I have to live up to the hype. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be that would be great. So tell me a little bit about how you fell into sales because most people don't wake up as a young child and say to themselves, I would love to be a salesperson. Did you accidentally fall into it or was this calculated? So it's kind of a, I would say it's different for most people who, who had a career or a dream. Like for me, I remember my dream when I was young was to be a ophthalmologist, basically like to be a doctor because I knew an ophthalmologist who was someone very extroverted and very fun. And I wanted it to be like him. And quickly I realized that the job doesn't actually make you like that. It's just the personality. So I thought, okay, I just want to be like him. And my parents told me, Thibaut, with your personality, you actually are someone who would like to do more business or become a banker or whatever. And I fell into sales as such because I wanted to do my private product license. So I wanted to become a pilot. And my parents were like, great, but we're never paying for that. You know, you're going to do like some normal studies. And uh, if you want to pay your hobby, that's great. You have to go and work. And my grandfather told me, instead of actually trying to raise money from your family, why don't you go to the airfield, go and uh, air, uh, clean some airplanes, and then you make some money. That's what I did. So I started prospecting airplane owners, selling like airplane cleaning services for 20 Swiss francs an hour. And I got my product license before my driving license. And so I very quickly at 15 years old kind of fell into sales. And then I, I got addicted to the the kind of closing, like the 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 just the ability to do whatever you want with the money you make. So, yeah, I've started early. How does one go about prospecting someone that owns a jet if they're 15 years old? I would imagine if I'm a jet owner, I don't want a 15 year old near my jet. <laughs> yeah. So people were actually not really flying jets. They were more like a, a proper play, like piston engine planes, so smaller planes. But what you see is that if you own a small plane, it's going to cost you like minimum 10, 20,000 US dollars per year just to maintain it, not even fly it. So these people, often they own jets, they have a lot of money and it means they also don't have too much time. So what they like to do is to go like fly the plane, go back home. And if you go and say, hey, by the way, your plane looks pretty dirty. If you poke the bear, you know, for example, people are like, yeah, it's pretty dirty and say, what are you planning to do to solve that? I say, I don't know. And say, if you want, I can clean it for you. And so that's how I got a, a guy to give me the keys of a 3.5 million Cessna, which was a really like cool, uh, cool plane. And I was just cleaning it. And, and yeah, they, they just trusted me because they, they didn't want to do it themselves. Is that how they were getting the job done before you came around? They were, they were washing it themselves or they maybe weren't even doing anything. They were not washing it. They weren't it. even doing anything. No, they were not. They weren't doing anything. And often they were just going to the maintenance and then they were asking, for it to be washed and, and just pe people were doing a sloppy job doing it because they don't want to do it. 
So I love that story. It reminds me of a story that Gary Halbert tells to his students. So Gary Halbert, a legendary direct response copywriter, tells this story. He poses this question to his students. He said, let's say I was going to open up a hamburger stand next to some other hamburger stands, and I wanted to get the most business. What's the one thing that I would have to do? And so the students answer, you need secret sauce, you need homemade buns, you need crispier fries, you need a better location. And Halbert responds, actually, you need starving customers. You need people that are actually really starving for a hamburger because if they were starving for a hamburger, it wouldn't really matter if your bun was homemade. And so I love that story that you just told because you're basically finding starving hamburger people, starving people for getting their plane washed. And you're also, mm -hmm. as you said, you know, kind of poking the bear, really kind of hurting their ego a little bit, right? Like, I don't want my plane to be dirty. Let me ask you another question. Being 15, I would imagine that also was a little appealing. Like, who's this kid hustling, self-starting entrepreneur that wants to wash planes? I would imagine that worked to your advantage when you were 15? Yeah. So one thing I've noticed, and that's kind of strange, I've always been very good at building relationship with people who were way older than me. So I don't know why, but really quickly when I was at 15, at, 15, at some point I realized my, I, my parents were inviting friends over sometimes, you know, and, and I was always like having dinner with them. And I, managed, I, I realized that I, was, I had this capacity to steer the conversation. I was just asking questions to adults, basically not being one. And also like going there, like hustling and doing this. A lot of people, they, they kind of, they saw me and they were like, okay, this guy is really serious about what he's doing. He wants to do his pilot license. So they were always really happy to take me, uh, fly with them. Like they were paying me lunch. They were like, you know, they were always really nice with me because I think they often, you know, they saw themselves maybe in, in me when they, when they were younger. And I think that's, that's maybe like, yeah, that, that's been really serving me to be able to uh, connect with these people on the, on that level. You get along well with old people, which describes why we're getting along so well. I mean, this is, uh, this is really. <laughs> This is really well. It sounds like it sounds like you're a curious person. It sounds like you you're you're you like, could say you're, that yeah. You're curious about people. It depends what kind of people, but sometimes I'm not. But very often I'm I'm very curious about stuff in life. I just really like learning stuff, and like one, one passion I picked at some point was uh, you know I live in Berlin. Berlin is known for its uh, electronic music scene and uh, DJing and stuff like that. And at some point I was really digging it, you know, I was going to clubs and, and like everything in life, in my life is crazy. I, I kind of, when I like it, I want to do it, master it and do it myself. So I learned how to DJ by myself. I got to play into clubs where it's actually very selective to enter. And it, you would find that funny. I did like a six hour set and I was paid 30 euro for that. So that's $40 for six hours. So, you know, I loved it because I had the opportunity to experience like playing for a crowd, moving the crowd and everything. But I just really love picking new stuff and really digging into it and understanding how it works. So you could say- I understand course. this Berlin scene. You go on like a Tuesday and you surface like five days later. It's not like a club here in the States where you go for like a couple hours. Is that is that right? Yeah, so you don't really start on Tuesday. You start mostly, let's say on Thursday, Friday. What you see very often is people start on Friday and they come back, like uh, they sleep in the club, they kind of have uh, their experience and, and then they, they kind of emerge either Monday morning or Tuesday morning. So that, that was like that. I never did it because I actually had a job. But yeah, that's kind of the experience. And uh, I've never done it this way, but that's a lot, what a lot of people do. So you yeah. don't see a lot of elderly Jewish people like myself that go to bed at 730 in these clubs. That's not the demographic. 
<laughs> no, 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 not really. You you see a lot of of strange people, but yeah, not people so like you. So you also <laughs> sound like the kind of guy that likes to reverse engineer things. Like you find something that you want to get good at and you figure out how to get good at it. So with regards to the DJing thing, what was your process for getting better at that? I mean, you started knowing nothing and then you got to a level of mastery yeah. where it sounds like a very competitive situation getting to be a DJ in a club like that. So you had a, a masterly, you know, you mastered it. How did you do that? So this, there was few steps. So first one is just like discovering how it works. So that's great. You have this thing called internet where you find blogs and they kind of tell you how things work, then acquiring the, the gear. So there's like very cheap uh, learning, learning stuff. And then I kind of like got familiar with it, got familiar with the rhythm. And one thing I remember my game kind of really went up when I went to see a DJ called DJ Wild. It's a French dude, actually. And he was like, I loved actually his tracks. And then I saw, I went to a club and I saw he was playing. I was like, oh my God. And I started chatting with him. And then I just like went behind in the booth and started observing what he was doing. And I just saw a bunch of things that were just like blew my mind. Like the way he was switching bass, you know, in between two tracks, playing with filters and everything. And then I just like observed that, went back home, did the same. And I was like, okay, that's great. So I picked up these little tactics. And I started kind of like applying them and that's how I, I kind of, and then I used obviously my outbound uh, techniques to get the gigs, which is what is the most important. Action. So I love this, right? I, I'm surprised that more people don't do this. I, I get called all the time to come into companies to do sales training. And one of the first things I'll say to a sales manager or a VP of sales is, do you have anybody in your company that's really proficient at prospecting or closing? And the answer is usually always yes. And my next question mm -hmm. is, why wouldn't you just do what you did, basically, Tiba? Why don't you just take someone that wants to get better and let them watch and observe someone that's really good at the job and then have that person do the job and let the mentor watch them and give them feedback until they've mastered it? It's the mm -hmm. absolute best way to learn. I think back in the day before there was yeah. internet, in order, if you wanted to learn how to be a better blacksmith, you watch someone make horseshoes and put them on horses. There wasn't like YouTube videos or sales trainers mm -hmm. coming in, teaching you how to put horseshoes on a horse. I think it's one of the best ways to get good at something, get the information like you did on YouTube, and then watch someone do it and then study what they're doing. And it sounds like you studied them at a detailed level. You're talking about mixing tracks. This is like you're going into a deep level of how they're doing it. You're really dissecting it. And then you're actually doing it and probably learning from it. And I don't know, did you ask them for feedback as you were going or did you kind of just evolve from there. So he, the guy was mixing. So I, I had like, uh, you know, there's this thing where, you know, DJ in Berlin, you're this kind of untouchable. You just have this aura that, that people are really like, it's kind of very strange. So I, I kind of just observed what he was saying. I was uh, bringing him drinks just so he would keep accepting me in his booth. And, and then just like, I never kind of talked to him again. I just went home, did my stuff. And then I realized a bunch of stuff. So I didn't have someone to tell me this is good. This is bad. And I actually hate having people. I, I just like, I love to have like my students tell me that, or, you know, I, I don't really like having mentors, but so yeah, I just like understood the tactic, played around with it. And then I added that to my toolbox. Yeah. So, so if you're a new SDR listening to this, or you've been in the game for a while and you want to get better and you're waiting for a sales trainer, or you're going on LinkedIn, looking at posts, or you're listening to this podcast, a faster way to do this is exactly what Tebow is talking about, which is find someone in your company that's good at whatever it is that you want to do and watch them and just do what they're doing. 
you don't, there's no like points off for cheating. It's not school. Um, that goes the same for anything you yeah. want to learn. If you want to be get better at tennis or chess, you want to get, get better at trading real estate, find someone who's making a lot of money trading real estate and fixing up real estate and, you know, hang out with them and observe them. So I love that, Tebow. Mm -hmm. Love that. So let's, let's actually transition a little bit into yeah. your job now. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. So what I'm doing now, I'm actually working for my company called Sales Labs and I train and coach Texas people to generate more opportunities and basically start more conversations. And lately I've been experimenting and documenting that mostly around LinkedIn. So I like to say, if you need someone to tell you how to call call, I'm not this person. I can't train you or whatever on that, but the other things I can. Okay. And so I read some copy that you wrote about the success you've had in this area using LinkedIn to get about a 40% reply rate from people that you're reaching out to. And then a 11% meeting rate, meaning that of the 40 people, 40% 40 of the people that are responding, there's a good percentage of them over 10% that are saying, Hey, I'd like to start a conversation with you. So what I want to do nice and slowly is walk through the process step by step of how you do this. And I may have some questions as we dig in. So when you're going about prospecting and you want to start a conversation with someone, what's the first thing that you start to work on? So the first thing for me is to find the right type of person. So I need to have a clear ideal customer profile when I know the type of person. That's the first thing. Then what I like to do is, is in my case, and you know that very well, our customers are hanging out on LinkedIn so much, and that's the case for a lot of professions. So when your prospects are hanging out on LinkedIn, what I found is that they are generating a huge amount of uh, digital footprint, I call that. So it's called namely like post likes, comments, stuff they do, like what they post themselves. And so I use that, I call that the Oasis effect. I use people who are have already a good audience. I create my own stuff, but like really for the sake of people listening to. So you can find people who have really a good audience and they will attract, if they talk to your ideal customer profile, whenever they post, they will attract a lot of this attention, which will convert into post likes, comments, and this kind of thing. So the first thing I do is finding this post. I call that the Oasis effect. If you're in the desert and you actually are hungry and starving, if you find an Oasis, it's a good sign because you have water, bushes, and animals you can hunt. So that's exactly the same thing here. You have the Oasis in the desert. And if I have a post, for example, about someone talking about how social selling is there or whatever, it's not working and 200 likes from VPs of sales, I can actually find the VPs of sales who like that, put them into my CRM, and then I'll build a sequence to get in touch with them. So that's really the, the first step is to find the trigger, like the excuse, the public information that I can use that shows me they have a problem I can solve or an interest in talking with me. And that's the first thing I find. So I find like the piece of information that will attract the people and that will also justify my outreach. And is it any piece of content or is it a piece of content that relates to what it is that you do or how you potentially help? So it's a piece of content that is related to uh, the problem you're solving. So there's different ways you can do that. It can be a post, it can be an event, and it can be a group on LinkedIn. So these are three places where you can find a lot of data. So if I'm selling to HR people and there's like a HR event, you know, that's going to attract these kind of HR people. And then I will actually just like change and adapt my trigger. But the idea is really, there's always this kind of excuse that will be like uh, uh, related more or less to the job. And, and that's, that's what I'm, I'm going to Okay. Use. So let's actually do this for real. So let's say you were going to go ahead and pr 
prospect someone, you pull someone up like like a like me or like a Beck Holland or like a John Burroughs or somebody that's got some reach on LinkedIn, and you'd be monitoring their mm-hmm. posts. And when you find a post, you know I write about cold outreach all the time, as well as many other people on LinkedIn. When you find a post that relates to how you potentially help, you monitor it. And then once you see people liking and commenting it, you'll filter that down. You're not going to reach out to an SDR mm-hmm. probably, but if you see like a John Jensen, who's now running sales over at Gong, if you see him, and he does, if you see him liking or commenting on something that I did, let's just assume that's the case. What do you do next? So let's say, hi, John Jensen, he's, he's running sales for Enterprise over at Gong. Mm-hmm. He liked something that I wrote related to prospecting. Yeah. And now what happens? So there was a recent post that I liked where you were talking about humor in copy, where, you know, being humorous and everything. And so let's say, what's the name of this person? You say uh, John, or? John Jensen, uh, J-O-H-N oh, yeah. Jensen, okay. J-E-N-S-E-N. Yeah, John Jensen. Okay. So John liked it. So what I use is I will use this trigger and uh, I have a thing which is like either a question or a teaser. So trigger question or trigger teaser for the connection request. So I will be something like, Hey, John, notice you also like the post of Josh about, you know, like having, like making fun of our using humor in sales. And then I will ask a question. I'm curious to know how are you solving this problem or a teaser? If you're interested, I have a quick resource to help you make your reps more uh, lively or less corporate, like corporate sound, how you call that sound less corporate mm. basically. So it's always. I like to create these. Are you watching Netflix, Josh? Are you are you watching a series? Oh my god, so many today? series, so many things, all the time. What's the latest? You, so right now, I am watching a series on Netflix. God, what is the uh, Queen's Gambit? Okay, Queen's Gambit. Have you have you found yourself binge watching it? Yes. Okay. Do you know why you binge watch it? Yes. It's these last two minutes of every episode. They create yeah. these little cliffhangers and, and I, it's like crack. I have to, I have to keep watching it. Exactly. That's the same. I actually want to enable in this outreach is really this thing where there's a, like I show an understanding of a specific problem and I say, I have a solution for you, but you got to give me something in exchange, just a reply. And so for me, that's really like the, the mindset switch I found is that instead of trying to go and book meetings and say, here's my calendar link and get some time with me, I want to just get someone to reply. Yes, no, maybe that's just the goal of my sequence. So that's really the idea is to start with this connection request. And the idea of the connection request is that the idea is to get connected. So I try to enable the conversation, but very often the conversation doesn't start. It just gets the connection request accepted. And that's the goal. Get into there because then I can use LinkedIn voice notes, the native videos. I can use a ton of other weapons basically to get heard and seen in the mailbox of my Sure, sure, sure. So it's almost like when you're first meeting someone, you might not ask them to meet their parents right away. (laughs) If you're you know, single, yeah. you might, you know, perhaps chat them up on an app and get some texting going. And then once there's some familiarity and some trust, you might move to the phone and then maybe you move to a, like a, a live, you know, dinner at some point. So this is very similar. So you're offering something that relates to what it is that that person liked or commented on. And you're saying, Hey, I got mm-hmm. this resource that could potentially help you in this area. Do you want Do you want to see it or do you want to check it out? And a percentage of those people say, sure. And then I would imagine you send 
this is not a switch and switch and bait, right? Like I would imagine you actually send the piece of content that you were promoting. Is that the case? Yeah. So basically I have core pieces of content, which can be videos, a checklist. And that's the thing. If you're an SDR, you have a ton of marketing material. And so what I found is a great way to, to kind of like bypass the uh, marketing, like marketing teams hate that. But if you have to put like uh, your email to get a resource, a lot of people hate doing that. So you download it for yourself, you host, host it on drive. And then you say, if you want to have this resource for you and you drop the link ungated. And so then you're playing this game where you are on there, you know, like you're, you're basically it's us against marketing and then they get this resource. And then after a few days, I ask like, you're, you're a big fan of Chris Voss. I listen to a lot of things he's saying. And so there's these calibrated questions like, what do you think? Do you feel like you could be using that with your team? Or do you feel like your reps will get value by using mm -hmm. that? And then the conversation starts. And then I love to say, okay, what are your key initiatives for the next three to six months in sales development? And they like to talk and, and, and very often you just have to this conversation going and at some point they know what you're doing. So they're like, Hey, you know, maybe it's not really the right time. We don't have time for training or time for this, but maybe in two months or sometimes they're like, Oh, actually, I just want to know what you're doing. Like, tell me more. I say, and now that's the time I can book a call. So really the idea is to get the conversation started, build the relationship and then have the conversation and, and, and then book the call. If there's, yeah, I love this. I, you know, several years ago I was on tour with Beck Holland at flip the script. We went to a bunch of different cities and mm -hmm. a couple hundred people in each room. And one of the questions I asked was raise your hand. If my talk was going to be about a chorus demo, if I was giving a chorus demo, would you have showed up here? Raise your hand. This was a chorus demo and not one hand went up. And then my follow-up question was something like raise your hand. If you think your prospects are any different. And I think that's kind of what we're, you're getting at here is that most of the time when you reach out to people, they're not actively in buy mode. They're not looking for what you're selling. If they were, they would be coming to you. And so you're going to always start more conversations with people when you come from a place of making them smarter about a topic they care about rather than trying to get mm -hmm. them to buy something that they're not actively shopping for. So I think that's the approach you're using here because everyone is wired to level up and we all want to be a better version of ourselves tomorrow than we are today. We all, we all want to improve our life situation. Mm -hmm. It's why... You're listening to this podcast. It's why you go to webinars. It's why you read books. And so it's a similar approach you're taking here, which is to make a deposit or to give something that will make someone smarter, some useful piece of information um, in exchange for being able to you know, start a conversation with them and asking them if they want to mm -hmm. opt into it rather than just sending it to them. And so it sounds like using this approach, you get about a 38% a response rate of people saying, yeah, I'd like to see that thing. And then from that, 11% of those mm -hmm. people actually engage and you actually a deeper conversation with? Yeah, exactly. So out of these, there's between 11 and 20. That really depends on the, let's say, the time of the year where people will actually book a call with me. And what I found is that it's crazy because a lot of people, they have this very short-term vision about prospecting. So they, they, they want to close, they want to get people into meetings and because that's their quota and that's, that's what they care for. And so for me, I found that a lot of these conversations I have do not result in immediate meetings, but they come back later as inbound leads. So it's crazy. Like there's a lot of people who are not interested right now, but they got this great experience. And what I've seen is a lot of people are forwarding my prospecting to their teams. So it creates this effect where people ask, oh, that's interesting. And then they come back to me and they're like, hey, you know, like I've seen that. I really like it. Or hey, Thibault, now is a good time. We need to talk because tomorrow we need to do a training. And so the conversations I have 
are really great because they are always very qualified. And I get like now 60, 70% opportunity rate out of the first meetings I have, which used to be more 50 before. And so because I get maybe less conversations, but when they are happening, they are really good. Yeah, sort of, you know, good old delayed gratification for the win. What, what do you think mm -hmm. is the cause of salespeople rushing the sale? Where do you think that is coming from? I mean, they rush because there's the different things, but you have like a quota, <laughs> you have like investors who are p pumping money and, and hundreds of millions to, to kind of like do an 11x exit or whatever and do the IPO. So that's the first thing. And then it goes uh, down the, 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 the chain of command. And then people are like, you need to go and do your activity target and you need to reach your targets and everything. So that's, that's kind of like the very high intensity nature of sales that makes it like that. And often the thing is, for guys like you and me, like for me, I, I'm fine. I love actually having this conversation when people say no, because I know in two years, I'm going to still be doing what I'm doing for reps. Maybe they don't see themselves doing that for a long time. So they feel like they have to do it now. You know, they have to get the results so they can maybe buy a way out of the, out of the rat race or just go to the next company. So I think they want to get results immediately. And, and I think that that would be my analysis. I love that. I think more sales careers are destroyed because people don't have patience. And to your point, when mm -hmm. your intent is to push people faster so you can hit quota, when that's your intent, what ends up happening is you say things and behave in ways that feel pushy. You send seven emails yeah. in nine days. You don't take no for an answer. And whenever prospects feel that push, they, they pull away. So your thoughts, literally your thoughts, your intent affects your behavior, which affects your results. Mm -hmm. And the only way that I know out of that trap is to just change your intent. And the intent change is to focus on your prospect instead of your product and to realize that not everyone you reach out to is a fit or is ready to buy right now, but they may one day. You know, this actually, you know, it's kind of detaching from the outcome. And ironically, when you do that, you behave differently. You sound differently. Yeah. You sell differently. You create an environment where people don't feel sold. And therefore, they're more open to having a conversation with you. I mean, your approach that you're using right now, you're really creating an opening. You really don't have a ulterior motive. You're not like, if you don't, if you get this piece of content, I have a book, a meeting with you and I have to sell, you kind of are letting go of your agenda. And because of that, you're creating an environment where people feel comfortable having a conversation with you. So you have a different intent, you're behaving differently and therefore you have different results. So I love that. Let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit to another post that you wrote. Mm -hmm. And this is the headline of your post. Video prospecting is, and then you have a little emoticon with a fire. All the kids now are using emoticons. Old people like me, we spell out fire, but I guess <laughs> the kids spelling out fire too long. Uh, we have a little emoticon, but the best reps I meet are afraid of it. It's intimidating. They hate seeing their faces on camera. They hate hearing their voices on the recording. They come up with all kinds of excuses of why they can't do it. It doesn't have to be that way. So let's actually talk a little bit about that. You kind of talked about what's going on. How do you now, once someone's accepted the connection request, you perhaps have sent them a piece of content to make them smarter about a topic they're interested in. One of the channels you can use now, as you pointed out, is, is LinkedIn voicemail. A lot of people don't know about that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I'm correct in saying this, Tebow, that you can only get that on the mobile app. 
You can only use it on the mobile app? Okay. Yep. The other thing you can use is video. You, m- you mentioned native. For people that don't know what that means, can you explain what it means to be native video? So native is just meaning that you, when you go on LinkedIn and you're connected with someone, there's a small microphone app just like in uh, WhatsApp, a small icon, and you can record a voice note. You can do the same, which is a video. So it means that you click on the plus and it's kind of a video you record inside of LinkedIn. That's why we call that. And why is that important? Why is that important native versus uh, because the alternative is click this link and go and watch this video? Yeah, absolutely. So native is great because you can see the video popping. So people will actually see a pattern interrupt like they see a video. And one thing is when you see a triangle, you're kind of wired to understand that it's a play button. No matter what's the culture, you see the triangle pointing to the right, you want to click on it. So when you see that video, you actually see some someone behind and, and your instinct is like, I want to know what's behind the cliffhanger, basically. So that's why it's interesting. The link can also work really well, but very often, if you put a link early on, uh, your brain will see, okay, someone's trying to book a meeting with me. And then you're just going to shut down. So, so I love why. this, right? So we talk a lot about this on the podcast, this idea of white circles and red X's. Right. So the brain is a pattern recognizing machine. That's why you don't pay attention to every car when you drive. That's why when you walk into an auditorium, you only look for your seat. You're not paying attention to every seat. So brains will ignore patterns. So if they have seen, if the brain has seen this stuff before, more likely to ignore it. If you see a thumbnail with a play button on it, or even a voice message with a play button on it, it's pretty much impossible not to hit the play button because so few people send that. So just by the nature of being mm-hmm. different in that way, you're going to get someone's attention. Now, getting attention is easy. Um, I can honk a horn and send a triangle and people will click the thing, but keeping the attention is much harder. So let's talk about what happens after the click. So after the click, what's happening is in the video. So for me, I have an asynchronous kind of a framework. So there's a bunch of things, but it's often four steps. So the first one is either like the trigger, if it's a video, because like I saw a post and I'm already connected. I skip the trigger if people are already kind of uh, connected with me. And then, you know, I have a thing which like, again, the same logic I talk. So you have question, teaser, call to action. So again, I love to kind of, uh, there's this book called Problem Prospecting from uh, Richard Smith, where they kind of take the assumption that you have to find problems. And uh, that's also something I've learned from uh, my mentor, Skip Miller. Maybe you know you know Skip. And uh, like it's been a, a thing that has changed my, my, my understanding of how you do business is you actually find problems. And if you can solve a solution and make a profit doing it, you have a profitable business. So the idea for me is always look for the problem. I actually never talk about the solution or whatever, because if I go and say, hey, you know, I'm Thibaut, I can sell you some sales training about LinkedIn, like everyone will hate that. Like a, a LinkedIn sales trainer, that just sounds really bad. So basically I'll ask a question, you know, like what is a specific problem you you are actually trying to, to solve or really try to, you know, to have the, these questions. I think you call them illumination questions or poking the bear where you try to actually get them to, to you have this question that gets them to understand that you understand their problem. So it's really like really spend a lot of time to understand the problem of your of your prospects. And then again, a resource that I'm going to try and tease. If you're into it, I have a quick video I'd love to share. And then there's this call to action, which is like, let's talk is actually, it's something different. It's should I send it over? Or are you interested in seeing more? And again, the idea is to emulate this conversation with this, this simple conversation. And you can do it in email, text, voice, like a LinkedIn voice note, or even video. 
So let's do an example of one of these. I think I understand it in principle, but let's you know pull up maybe any prospect that you've done this with. Maybe give me an example of how you would start this. You mentioned you're going to start to ask them a question or talk about a problem. What might that mm -hmm. sound like? So for, let's say, a head of business development that like to post about video prospecting or people doing connect and sell. I say, hey, first name, notice you like this post about the connect and sell uh, trend you see on LinkedIn. I'm actually, I would love to know what are you doing to prevent your team from turning off prospects with pushy LinkedIn messages? And then I'll do something like, if you're interested or if you're into it, I'd love to share a quick resource on how you can get your team to start genuine conversations on LinkedIn. Should I send it over? Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. So the idea here, and I think this is really the sales superpower. And anyone that's been listening to me for a while, have me harping on this for a while. So if you've heard it, feel free to fast forward. But the idea here is that people are getting the job done when you reach out. They're making progress. They're getting from point A to point B with their current solution. Your job is to shine a light on something they might not know about that can hurt them. You know, so by way of example, you know, several years ago, I was in the mall with my wife and didn't need anything to kill some time. I walked into a fit to run store. And if the associate said to me, what brings you in today? I would have said nothing. If she said, do you have any problems? I would have said no, but she didn't do any of those things. She looked down at my sneakers. She said, are you a runner? I said, yes. She said, what distance? I said, marathon. And she said, have you ever had a running gate test? And I said, what's that? And moments later, I'm literally on a treadmill in the store. She freezes the frame. She points me to my ankles. She zooms in and she said, do you notice how your feet are overpronating when you run? I go, yeah. She goes, the problem is if you run in sneakers that are not made for pronated feet, you can get injured on long distance runs. You can get shin splints and knee splints and be sidelined for your marathon. And if you'd like, I could take a look at your sneakers to see if they're made for pronated feet. And I don't know, six minutes later, I'm spending $180 on new sneakers and insoles. But this is the same thing you're talking about, which is what question can you ask that makes the prospect think to themselves, Hmm, I'm not sure. Right? And then they kind of lean forward a little bit. It's a very it's a very different approach than starting to pitch. Because again, as we've established earlier in this podcast, when you start to pitch, people will start to be guarded because they want to protect themselves against parting money with a self-serving salesperson. It's it's called self-preservation. Right. But when we get people to come to their own conclusions because we've planted a seed they're more likely to lean forward and say, well, what do you mean? One thing I want to talk a little bit about here, because a lot of people don't get this right, because I see people sending me examples hundreds every day. And sometimes these questions that people are writing are leading questions. Um, let's talk a little bit about what that is and why it's detrimental. So let me give you an example of a leading question. A leading question is a question that you're asking that is provoking someone to answer in a way that will serve you. So I might say to Tebow, hey, mm -hmm. Tebow, if I could 10x your revenue, would you be interested in talking to me? Duh. Like that's It's a very self-serving <laughs> kind of question. These yeah. are not that. These questions are more neutral. So just by way of an, another example, I had a question that came from Adam's Car Wash Supply Company several years ago because I subscribed to their list. I like to wash my car. And the line was something like, how do you know your wash mitt isn't scratching your car? And it turns out that if you wash your car with a normal bucket and sponge, dirt can get on it and can scratch your car. And they sell a bucket with a grate mm -hmm. and kind of settles it to the bottom, the dirt to the bottom of the bucket. And I ended up buying that bucket. But these questions are neutral and they're a little hard to write. Yeah. And they typically start with how are you going about or how are you dealing with or how do you know? So talk to me a little bit about that, Tebow. How do we ask a question that doesn't come across 
in a way that feels like we're leading the witness to a desired outcome yeah. or desired response. So I think it's really like um, having first, I think, trying to have an open-ended question that will end by an explanation and on a yes or a no, because you have these these questions that are close-ended, yes, no, they are often used to steer the conversation in the direction. So I guess, you know, for me in training, when someone is challenging and just like always, like you, you kind of lead them with that and you kind of try to get, get rid of them. So the idea is that you're going to get like this open question. For me, it's really focusing on that. So how are you solving? How are you preventing? And so really to focus on the, it's called like away language. So skip, use that all the time. You have towards language and away language. Go and look for any marketing page of a B2B size company. And they will tell you, we can increase your lead by 30%, do this, do that. And it's amazing. And as humans, we are driven by pain avoidance or pleasure seeking. And so for me, it's really like open-ended question trying to actually focus on the pain. So what are you doing to prevent, minimize, reduce, alleviate? And uh, and that's really like like how we get this conversation, conversation started. And what I want to do is really with this question, make them understand that I'm aware of a problem or I'm assuming sometimes problems. You know, if you're a VP of sales, you just started and you've been hired for outbound, I'm assuming you're going to have a bunch of problems. So if you just started, I'm saying, just notice you started as a VP of sales. How are you making sure that your reps are not, you know, like just doing outbound and not developing outbound habits, yeah. for example? So that's that's really this this. I think the how are you making sure is really a great formula for that. Yeah. So you said a couple things there. I think that's really interesting. This idea of pleasure, as you called it, in game. So the the sort of pain thing is interesting, right? Because if I were to tell you, Tebow, we're going to place a little bet here. Heads, you win a hundred. Tails, you lose a hundred. Most people don't take that bet because the pain of losing the hundred hurts more than gaining the hundred. It's it's called loss aversion. So anytime yeah. we are playing to f- asking a question that basically causes the prospect to think, gee, what am I doing right now that's causing me to lose money? Essentially, the question you have to ask is, what do you know that your prospect doesn't know that can hurt them? This has nothing to do with your value proposition. Mm-hmm. This has nothing to do with your product. This is the question of what does it cost your prospect to do nothing? Because until you can kind of land on Mm -hmm. that, the solution has no value. The solution has no value unless the prospect is scratching their head saying, yeah, I see that. And that sounds big and expensive. And oftentimes from an outbound perspective, Mm -hmm. prospects aren't thinking about that. So these questions are critical and it takes an understanding of your customer and how they're getting the job done today which is what I want to transition into next. Um, you're fortunate in that you're selling to people and you know their job because you're doing the job. So many people yeah. are selling to people that they've never done their job before. And this takes a really good understanding of at a crispy and visceral, meaning you have to feel how they're doing it today. You have to see it. My friend Armand talks about this. Mm-hmm. He spends at his company, I think it's called Pace. They spend 90% of their time doing training, not talking about the product, but they actually show mm-hmm. the reps the problem. Not talking about the problem, but they're actually showing them how people are getting the job done today. They're opening up spreadsheets. They're inserting these columns. They're copying and pasting things from Google Sheets in. They're making these mistakes because it's copy and paste errors. This is how long it takes. And they're actually watching mm-hmm. it in real time. And the last 10% is, this is what happens when they have our product. But most of the training is on the problem. And that's what's the missing gap. So what's your take on or How do you get good at understanding the problem of your customer if you've never done the job before you're 25 years old and you're selling to a cybersecurity person 
So I have one of my students and member of my community, Jan Mundorf. Really recommend actually if you want to invite a young guy on the on the show. He's really excellent. He's working for a company called Albacross, I think, and he started doing like a inter interview series. I think he picked one of your posts where he saw that you can interview people. So I think listening to people and the podcast they have, like they are doing, if they are being interviewed, is a great way to do that. Going to your CRM, talking to the let's say the the customer success managers. For example, it's a re really good thing because these people are always dealing with problems of the customers and asking them what are the top three problems you see all the time. And so uh, I think that's if you can find some great content like where people are talking about the typical problems they have. I did a podcast with Mary Shea from Outreach last week, and we talked about the top challenges of CROs in 2022. So, you know, it's really being curious about that, finding some data about it. There's a thing you can go on Google and say, say top challenges of CTO, CPO, whoever you're selling to. And then you're going to see some documentation like Gartner, whatever research for Esther. That's going to give you kind of an indication of what they care for. And very often it's going to be like CSO in 2022 want to enable virtual uh, sales enablement or, you know, virtual training. That's great, but it's not, it's, it, 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 you know, you just go, if you use these words, like people will just like ignore you. So then you try and understand what does it mean for their day to day. And we love, we skip to have this differentiation, which is called above the line and below the line. So the above the line buyer is your fiscal buyer and they are worrying about, they're just like, think about like a, a soccer or a football, American football coach. They worry about one thing is making sure they keep their job by making sure the, the team is winning. So that's what they, they think about. And if you go and say, you know, I can train your right to actually kick the ball and do that. And so they, they, they score goals. They don't care because they have the whole big picture to take care of. So understanding that these people care for that, which is often risk, you know, ROI, this kind of, of, of problem they're trying to really solve market shares. And then understanding like the below the line buyer who are dealing often with your solution, what is making, you know, like very often it's about time, about a bit of the money. Like I have a fixed budget. How can I make sure that I can, you know, maximize what I can do with this budget? So it's really going deep into this is the problem. This is the consequence for people that are, you know, down the, the comment chain. Yeah. And something else to, to keep in mind, if you've ever read an article by a pro journalist, if you've ever read lots of articles mm -hmm. by pro journalists, they all have one thing in common. And the one thing they have in common without fail are these little things called quotation marks. And what's in between these quotation marks are things that people are actually saying that are experts because the journalist is not an expert. And the things that are inside the quote marks really hit you because, oh my gosh, that's someone actually saying that thing. So as an SDR, what you're looking mm -hmm. for is the stuff in between the quote marks that speaks to what was going on before they switched. Because nobody wakes up one day, if we study jobs to be done theory, deciding they want to switch something because it's very risky to switch something. Will I lose my job? Mm -hmm. Was the rep overselling this thing? Will it be adopted? How long will it take me to learn this thing? So there's a lot of anxiety that are making people stick with the status quo. People would rather dance with the devil they know. There has to be a strong enough problem and pain to start to pull people forward. And so what you want to hear is, what are all those events and circumstances that happened that finally caused enough dominoes to tip over that made them actually switch? And so interviewing customers using jobs to be done is the best way that I know to get that nugget, that's not always feasible to your point. The next best way, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, I think, is if you can look at case studies 
And not all companies have great case studies. They're not all created equal. So Gong has amazing case studies. Captivate IQ has amazing case studies. The reason I'm saying that is if you go to Captivate IQ today and you read, for instance, the Gong customer success story by Albert, what you'll hear is quotes from Albert about what sucked before he was getting the job done today. And then just mm -hmm. like a journalist, what you do is you take that and you turn, you convert that into what Albert, what Theo's talking about here or in your cold call script or your cold emails. It turns out that your customers are better at doing this than you are. And certainly, and no slam on marketing, I'm certainly marketing's interpretation of it. So I used to start when I did this, a Google doc called the lingo library. And I would just collect problem like before stuff. Like I think of it like an infomercial. And I'm just collecting quotes from the customers because I couldn't make it up. And that really attributed a lot to me being able to start conversations because you're actually joining the conversation that's in their head. It's almost like, mm -hmm. oh my God, you're one of me. And where the brain naturally goes when it hears that is, what do you have? Like, I'll give you a quick example. Mm -hmm. A tri triathlon coach that I was speaking with, I, I do these triathlons. This is kind of what he said to me. He goes, you know, Josh, a lot of people that are training for Ironman races are really trying to balance their work and family life with training for a triathlon. They're spending like 20 hours a week training. I call that divorce by triathlon. Now that's funny and true because in the triathlon world, and this is insider triathlon lingo, there's a bumper sticker that's pretty famous and prevalent that says, if you're still married, you're not training enough. Obviously, it's a, it's a funny thing, but that's only information you could get if you're like an insider. And so when you hear that, what your yeah. brain goes to is, well, what do you have? It's just a natural place. And to your point, if I were to say I'm a, I'm a triathlon training coach that helps you go faster, where my brain goes is I'm going fast enough. But if you can try to get me out of the doghouse and I don't have to spend 20 hours a week so I don't lose my Sundays... <laughs> Uh, keep my marriage, then that's going to be something I'm going to be interested in. And he had a training program that was like 10 hours a week that still allowed you to finish the race and start strong. But that, that's, this is the hardest part for me. I think for a lot of people okay. is they're out of, it's like a fish out of water. They're intimidated because I, I don't know about being a CTO mm -hmm. and they hear the language and they're barking the language, but they don't really f understand it. They don't really. So they'll say things like optimize yeah. and streamline and save time and save money. And therefore they're, they're being too generic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's really, and I love like, like what you said about that. Like if you're not, if you're still married, you're not training enough. I think it just shows the problem is like the, the commitment you have for, for triathlon is huge and it takes a huge toll on, on your, on your family life. And if you can do it without the toll, that's amazing. That's, as you said, you're, you're solving, you have a job to be done and, and you're solving it. So I, I think it's, uh, that's really like going, you know, getting this insider piece of information. And one thing is people who are in, uh, let's say CTO, or this, all these above the line buyers, they are always super happy to talk about their problems. One thing you get, and it's a, a trick I give, I give to people to understand if you're talking to an above the line buyer or below the line buyer is that you ask them, what's your, what's your target? What's your number? And often they will pull up the, la the latest slides they, they have done and they will show you the plan and everything. And they're just going to be super happy to talk about themselves and their stuff. So I think it's really about having these places. And when people are interviewed on podcasts, on webinars or whatever, they always love to talk about that. So I think it's, it's really about finding these opportunities. Yeah, one quick tip there as well is you might want to try this, Thibault. You might like this. Instead of asking people what their number is, if you actually say, what's your number? And you give kind of a low number. 
on purpose? Like, is it like 1 million or 2 million? They're like, oh my God, it's way <laughs> higher than that. You're going to kind of play into the eco thing. It's almost like if someone were to ask yeah, you like, yeah. how much, how much of those, like how much listeners do you have? Like 20, 30, like, no, dude, I got like a thousand. Right. So that's another tip for kind of drawing people out. The other yeah. thing too, I want to ask you about is, you know, a problem alone isn't enough. Right. So I live with problems all the time. I'm um, so do you. I, I have a mm-hmm. pixel out of my TV in the back bedroom right now. It's a problem, but I rarely watch that TV. And when I do, I barely notice the pixel. And because I have limited resources, I'm not going to do anything about it. So when picking problems, we have to pick problems that are big and expensive, you know, frequent and intense. Sometimes when I hear from SDRs are picking these problems and I kind of dig in, it's a five minute problem, meaning they're doing it, it, yeah. it. Yeah, it takes five minutes and you can do it in one minute, but they're only doing it once every two months. And so it doesn't really matter someone I was talking to a couple of weeks ago, like I could save a doctor 500 bucks a month. I'm like, that's a doctor's bar bill. Like on a typical Saturday yeah. night, it's not really worth getting and doing business with someone and risking their business. And especially a doctor, they're really risk adverse. So we got to pick big expensive problems. The other thing I want to get your, your take on is everyone's solving it today. So what is your point of view, right? In the triathlon example, this guy had a point of view. Point of view was you don't need to train 20 hours a week to be able to finish an Ironman. Not, I got a training program. So I think another key point here is in addition to asking the question, you actually have to have a distinct point of view about what it is that the prospect is doing wrong relative to what it is that you can do better. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about your point of view. Like there's tons of people doing what you're doing, I would imagine. And Mm -hmm. what is your point of view relative to perhaps what the prospect has heard before. So re- regard to what problem, for and, example? Any of these problems. A, a so problem like pick, pick any of these problems that you're, you're, yeah. you're working on and what is your point of view? And, and to clarify this, just to make it a little more clear, I don't, you're, you're too young to remember this, but 2007, Steve Jobs went on stage and he showed the iPhone for the first time. I had a BlackBerry and it was yeah. awesome. I did not have a problem with my BlackBerry until I heard these words come out of Steve Jobs' mouth. This is exactly pretty much what he said. He said, you know, the problem with smartphones, and he listed them all out, the Nokia, the Treo, the Palm, like all of them on the, on the screen. He goes, the problems with smartphones is they're not that smart. It's these keys mm-hmm. that are fixed in plastic that don't move. Well, every application wants a different set of keys, so it just doesn't work. We're going to get rid of those keys. And you're like, whoa. That's a point of view. The triathlon guy, the yeah. point of view is you don't need to train 20 hours a week. What do you have? A, how do you develop your point of view so that when you actually get someone spun up, they're like, oh, this is different than what we're doing. This isn't just another training program because nobody you're reaching out mm-hmm. to is not doing a training program today. They're, they're training the reps somehow. What is it yeah. that you know? they don't know so my like the the big thing i like to to share for me is my experience trying stuff there's a vp of sales i've been working with who called me a mad scientist scientist of prospecting and so my idea is that like i believe that prospecting and i don't have a better metaphor for that but it's just like warfare technology where you develop a weapon that works extremely well and then, you know, works perfectly. You always hit target. And then the counterpart is actually developing a defense system and it doesn't work anymore. So you keep developing. And so my point of view is that people actually invest heavily in tools, prospecting tools, 
but they don't invest in the way you actually should use them. I'm not talking about product training, but how do you understand human psychology and how people build relationship online? And also it's the same in real life. So it's this, this first thing. And the other thing I actually noticed that is based on my experience. So I, I'm French. I'm, I'm from the, from France. And whenever I go to my grandparents' place in South of France, there's a market every Wednesday. And this market is in the village place. If you think about South of France, that's really what it is, basically. And what's happening there is that I go there and I always spend a ton of money because people come here and they show me, for example, like a really nice green tomato. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And they say, hey, Tivo, come here, you know, try this. And I try this and I'm like, that's great. And the tomato tastes great. So I take one kilo that I never eat. And it's the same. I had for 90 euro of cheese and sausage last time I went. I was like, how did I do that? And because I actually had this teaser, you know, I had the, this kind of emotion that was tied to that. And so for me, my point of view is that in prospecting, reps should be able to emulate that. This kind of French market feeling that we all like would love to have when you have it. You know, it's just, you, you just like stop thinking and you just like get your card out and just like really enjoy in the moment. And then, yeah. So that my point of view is that is we should keep experimenting and keep developing this kind of very emotional connection. And so, yeah, that would be my point of view. Love that. And that's really a strong point of view because I think the traditional way, remember selling is about the contrast. Right? The traditional way is people are jumping to whatever the hot thing is. Like they're, they're jumping to whatever the template is, whatever's posted on LinkedIn, whatever. Do I have to ask a no oriented question? Can I say, are you open to it? Do I say, do are you opposed to it? And then all of a sudden everyone starts asking, no orientated questions because they heard Chris Voss do it or they heard me do mm -hmm. it or you do it. And they're kind of what I call barking at print. What, what I mean by that is I used to be a yeah. kindergarten teacher and there were always these five-year-olds that could read fluent, always a subset, every class I taught. Mm -hmm. But then when you asked them comprehension questions, they had no idea. So we used to call that barking at print. And that's what a lot of reps do. <laughs> they're kind of barking at print. They're doing things, but they don't understand why. And because you don't understand the psychology of it, to your point, you're never going to have mastery of it because the mm -hmm. tactics are going to change all the time. There's a show here. I don't know if you've ever seen it called Nailed It on Netflix, where these, these yeah. chefs, they're master bakers making pastries and they make these elaborate cakes and then they give the, yeah. the contestants the exact recipe <laughs> and they tell them, go ahead and make the cake and, and they, they mess horrible. it up. It doesn't look anything like it. And I'm thinking to myself, why is that? Yeah. They're given the exact steps. It's because they don't have an understanding of why and how the ingredients work together like the chef does. And I think you're making a really mm -hmm. good point here is that in order to become a master, you have to understand the heuristics or the psychology behind how people think. And then you can start to experiment with different ways to make a cake or to go to a French market, which by the way, is this in Provence? Is that where this market is? Because I got to go get over there. It's in Lang Languedoc-Roussillon, so it's really close from Provence. Okay, yeah. so next time we do a podcast, we are going to do this from France and Provence and Languedoc-Provence. Yeah. Is that in your axe? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I'm happy to have you in the, you know, like in the, at the swimming pool, there's going to be like the uh, cicadas, the noise and everything. So <laughs> glad to have you here. You're going to love it there. I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, you, are, you have been phenomenally helpful. Thank you so much for sharing so many knowledge bombs. Do you have anything you want to promote? It seems like you have a new course that's coming out maybe soon. Yeah. So 
I mean, I, I want to give, so there's, there's a few things. There's a free, like a free kind of a sequence I'd love to share with. So you go to saleslabs.io slash ULOS and it's a free four step sequence I, I run on LinkedIn. You can use that. And the other course I'm doing, I don't know when you're going to release the episode, but it's releasing on the 18th of November and it's called the new outreach system. So it's a course where I really open everything on how, how I found leads, you know, how I build my sequence, how I do video prospecting, how I structure my day. And so if you want to go and check it out, uh, do you have like show notes, Josh, that you're going to share? I can figure that out. Yeah, I can, I can, I can put a link you, there. What's yeah. the link to yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. I'll, put the, I'll drop you the link, but it's, it says labs and then it's the new outreach system. So I'll type new outreach system on Google and okay. you'll find it. And give it. us, what was the link again for the, yeah. the free sequence? What was that one more time? So it's it's www.saleslabs, at the plural, .io slash U-L-O-S, Ultimate LinkedIn Outreach and Sequence. Tebow, if people want to find you on LinkedIn, how do they do that? They type in some name that they cannot spell into search. Is that how they do it? <laughs> yeah. Thibaut Suiris. So T-H-I-B-A-U-T, Suiris. At least there's no, no two like that. <laughs> and uh, they can just connect with me, mention the podcast, or just b please don't connect and pitch. Just <laughs> tell me something relevant and I'll be happy to find you. Thibaut, thank you so much for being generous <laughs> with your time, man. I, it was a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thank you, Josh.